Hey, Gabriel Blake. Hey, Gabriel Jose. Where are we today? We are still in our apartments. I have left... Oh, no, I did walk to my post office box since we spoke last, and that's... Oh, and I went to Saigon Sandwiches, so I left the house twice since we spoke last. Man, yeah, that for our ten people listening out there, and I'm being like pretty generous with our audience, uh, they should go to Psycho Sandwich. We should keep that lovely family afloat. Well, I mean, I don't know if they're family, but that group of ladies afloat. So are you like I me? I go like four days a week now, thanks to you. So you are welcome. That's yeah. that's the best restaurant that you have around. Restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> You have to roll with what you're given, man. Yes, sweet. <laughs> Alright, so uh, what did we watch this time? We watched the 1999 erotic thriller masterpiece, Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick. Now I have to ask you before we talk about the movie, are there other erotic thriller masterpieces out there? L. Fucker, I need to go through that. <laughs> Let me think. Um, yeah, I would think there are some of David Lynch films I would call erotic thrillers. Uh, Mag- not Magnolia. Um, <laughs> Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive, thank you. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. There are uh, other like, masterpieces. Or yeah. erotic thrillers. <laughs> so uh, this was your pick, I think. What did you pick it? To be honest, um, over the holiday break, I subscribed to HBO Max, and I was consuming a lot of the content on that platform, and I was very impressed. And there is a mini-series on there called The Undoing, uh, which stars Nicole Kidman and the British guy who slept with prostitutes. Oh, Hugh Grant? Hugh Grant, yes. Um, They play an an upper-class family in rich New York. Anyway, there were so many scenes in that film that reminded me of Eyes Wide Shut, where Nicole Kidman plays the same upper-class family in, um, I think it's what, Park West? Yeah, Park West, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just remembered that film. I love Stanley Kubrick. It's been a long time since I've seen it, and... I think those are all the reasons. And you hadn't seen it before, so I wanted you to see it. Yeah, no, that's actually a, a good reason, because I don't know why I always avoid this movie. I think that there was like a very negative reaction to it. It was a very polarizing movie when it was released. You know, I think that there was like maybe a bit more of a perception about like, oh, this is going to be like a sex thriller. So we expect to see more sex. There is not enough for it being a sex thriller, and there is other stuff that we don't care because we are in there the false pretense that there was going to be more sex so i think that it was like just taking in a negative kind of way because maybe the marketing campaign that they had it was like just over emphasizing that it was going to be like really explicit and by today's standards i yeah i mean there are like some sex but as we was the censored american version there is like some frontal nudity but only female there is not even like male nudity no male nudity and nicole kidman is there's there's a lot of top no there's a lot of frontal nudity with women a lot um but it's so not erotic like the point of the film is not to make you feel titillated 
it's just no telling. No, no, no. I was going to say that it's like I think that is displayed in a way that is pretty erotic and suggestive. I mean, the, all the women there. The point was to arouse you, though. There's nothing in this film that's arousing. Not arousing you, but it's a bit more like just displaying them in a way that it would be arousing to the characters. To John Cruise. I mean, just think that all of them they are like just, you know, like just wearing high heels and jewelry. Is that they are like just not only naked, they are like just displayed in a way that they are supposed to be suggestive. Suggestive, yes, absolutely. But if you think even in the orgy, the very upper class orgy that happens, like the women are wearing masks, like freakish masks. Like nothing about this is supposed to be sexy to the viewer. It's it's supposed to be like de-eroticized, in my opinion. Mm, I I don't fully agree with that because I think that is okay for us as we are the audience. We are saying like, what the fuck is going on here? But to the people, like maybe we do like a summary. We should do like a summary first. But it's like to uh, Tom Cruise during that party, during that orgy, is like he's actually being offered with the kind of sex that he was more looking for. He was not looking about like just finding a replacement to his wife. He was looking for I want sex. I want something that is as uh, not anonymous. It doesn't have to be anonymous, but I want something that is so uncommitted as possible. But the character can want sex without the point the director trying to make is to arouse the audience. And if you think about mm. so much of the sex, like a woman overdoses at a party, she's fully naked. You see her vagina, you see her breast. There's nothing arousing about that. You see him as a doctor feeling up tons of well, women. Nothing arousing about that. But but the thing is, like, just think about that woman on the party. Is that that woman in the party still has like perfect makeup and it's like in a perfect kind of you know like just position. It's not like in the ground and just with foam coming out of her mouth, you know, and then you know like tears like coming out of. No, it's not. It's still like just perfect makeup and just in a perfect kind of suggestive position, you know, like almost like just posing. So I think that Kubrick is like just playing with the idea of I'm displaying sex here that is that you shouldn't feel aroused by, but I'm going to be making it as suggestive as possible. And we're straight. So that there is, sorry, we're gay. Is like there is no kind of male nudity. There is nothing there for us. And maybe there yeah, were some dicks. Maybe there were some dicks on the uncensored version, but... No, I looked. I looked really close. <laughs> okay. So let me just summarize like the, the movie. So the movie actually follows uh, Bill and... Uh, uh, what is the name uh, uh, of uh, Alice? Uh, that is like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, that they are a happy marriage, or supposed to be happy marriage, in uh, Park West, New York. And I just want to I just want to add that their last name is Harford because during Stanley Kubrick's discussion with his scriptwriting partner at first they wanted to make them Jews they wanted to make them all sorts of things and then Kubrick's like no they just have to be very bland white they need to be like Harrison Ford so <laughs> Harford is a shortening of Harrison so because far. of that that's great yeah and that's that's actually like a really really good perspective they so the story takes place on the week of christmas we don't know exactly what day is the beginning or what day is the end but it's, it's the build up towards christmas day we don't know where it ends or where it starts and they're invited to this upper class new york party 
dance party that I don't want to go, but they go there and while uh, Tom Cruise is just talking with a couple of models that they are flirting with him, uh, Nicole Kidman gets hit by a really hot daddy. I don't know, it's a little grandpa. Romanian daddy. Romanian like daddy. Very suave, very... Uh, Swell, yeah. yeah. Smooth kind of talker, Smooth. you know, and he tries to seduce her. And she's like, just trying to get her, you know, like to have an affair with him. And uh, she's like, yeah, but no. And they highlight a lot of times about like how beautiful and gorgeous she is and she could have like any man there. And why would she want to be married when she could have anyone? Because that's everything that is to life. That's having anyone. That's the only thing that matters. It's your maximum arousal. That's all that's important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at the point of Cruz is called for uh, just helping uh, the host of the party that he actually was with a woman and that woman overdosed. So he actually just get her to be like just conscious again, saves the day because he's Tom Cruise and he cannot stop saying during this movie that he's a doctor. He says like at least 100 times, trust me, I'm a doctor, I have my license. <laughs> yeah, that's super obnoxious, but whatever. So uh, during that party, he meets up, he runs into an old college, no, an old uh, college student when he was in uh, uh, medical school, school. Uh, medical school. Yeah. yeah, and he actually dropped and he's now a piano player. So. Uh, and he tells me about like, oh, I'm just playing on this uh, on this cafe. So going back home, they have a conversation. I don't know if it's that night or the following night when she gets high. When Nicole it's Kidman. that night after the party. Yeah. So she gets high and they start talking about like what happened at the party. She start like just getting a bit insecure and asking is if he actually has sex with these two models. And he says like, no, I never did. You know, I never never do anything like that. I said, well, I actually had this conversation with this guy and he is pretty sure of himself about like, well, I know that you will never do anything like that. And she breaks down. And this is one of the reasons before the podcast, we're, we had like a lot of conversations already before the podcast, but I was saying that I am surprised, but I think that Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise was better than Nicole Kidman from an acting performance. Per- perspective on this movie. It's true that it's also like Tom Cruise is way more time on the screen compared with Nicole Kidman, but the breakdown when Nicole Kidman started like just laughing on that scene, I find it like super unbelievable. It's like you never got high. You never got high and laugh. Never! That's exactly what I thought when I watched it. I was like, this is so clear that Nicole Kidman has never smoked weed in her life. <laughs> Yeah, and besides that, if you say that they are like as bland as they get, you know, that's the reason why they have the Hartford name. That's the only part of it. Oh, and they smoke weed? Do it's very bland. progressive of them. Yeah. Also, I would like to tell you that while Nicole Kidman was working with Stanley Kubrick on this film, she confided in the director that she want, she was considering retiring from directing so she could focus on her family. And Kubrick told her, you owe it to your talent to keep acting. So we have Kubrick to thank for classics like the Stepford Wives. So thank you, Stanley Kubrick, for encouraging her to continue to be in our lives. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Blake. That was a very enlightening <laughs> fact. So uh, after breaking down laughing, uh, she says that she almost had an affair in one of the vacations that he had with a random guy that passed by, and it only checked her. There was no like interaction, they never talked, and she had that fantasy about like dropping everything, all his happy life in a family, her daughter, for just having an affair with this guy for 30 seconds. And that basically triggers the rest of the story, that is basically Tom Cruise going on to a spiral of, I want to have sex. 
I you wish. rock his fragile masculinity so yep. hard. Yep. I, just, yeah. Yep. And he opens his eyes to the sexual reality. Is that basically he starts sexualizes everything around him. When he was like, even I don't think that he was sexualizing like the uh, what is the name like the girl that he was overdosing. Ma- Maida. Moida, no. Uh, well, whatever the name was, is that, that woman that was about to uh, overdose? Marion, Marion, maybe. I don't know. Well, that woman that was about to uh, to overdose, to die of an overdose. He just is next to her. There is no kind of sexuality tension or anything. And then from that point, the camera work starts like, just focusing a bit more. Well, a bit more, a lot more into the sexualized reality that he lives in. You know, like people making out on the streets, like about like how hot women are that he interacts with. So that's it. He goes into, okay, I'm going to be like giving a walk. But this is on the following day, I think. And he is, uh, he gets called on the following day to a patient that died. And it's what it triggers everything that is like the, so the, the... The continuity is they go to the party, they come home, they smoke weed, have the conversation, mm. and while he's high, he gets the call that his patient died and he has to go out. But it doesn't make too much sense because the woman that over that overdosed, then it was at the orgy. But the the patient who died was just an old man and he goes yeah. over. But what I mean is that if you actually are recovering from an overdose, probably you're not going to be able to be at an orgy two hours later. Well, ultimately, we discovered that it wasn't that woman, right? Yeah, it was. It wasn't. Yeah, it was. On the conversation at the end, when they are at the pool table, he says, like, yeah, it was that woman, but you know that she was a junkie, and she overdosed. He's a giant liar, that guy. Everything he says is a lie to protect his image. If you look at the casting, you see that they're played by separate actresses, and that's on purpose, because it was not that girl. Okay, okay, let's continue. Let's continue. Okay. Uh, is, is it the same night? I thought I see actually he Not actually the same went actress. to work. They very specifically. No, 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 no. I think it was a different. Well, girl. but it could actually be like a different body double. You, but they don't credit actresses as body doubles. Hmm. I'm sorry, but this is very clear. This isn't even up for debate. In the credits, it shows girl at the party played by this person. Okay. Okay, let's continue with the summary. So basically, uh, he goes out walking. He goes to this, into uh, the uh, to the house of this patient, and the house of this patient. I have my thoughts about that. I, I, <laughs> sure. We'll come back. We'll circle back. Yeah, we'll circle back. We'll get there. So uh, at the house of uh, of this patient that just died, uh, the daughter just declares his love, her love to uh, to him. Is that, oh yeah, I'm dating this guy, we're about to move, but it's like, I don't want to move because I love you. And she actually just, without consent or anything, she just tries to impose herself onto him. And she actually just cuts her back, but it already opens the doors. So when he leaves the house, he's just looking for some companion. So uh, I'm going to be like just avoiding, well, I can just mention, she's dating the daughter of this patient that just died. She's dating someone that looks almost like him, a bit, taller. Yeah, exactly. a bit taller, but in any case, anyone in this world is a bit taller than Tom Cruise, to be fair. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, listener, how tall you are, you are probably taller than Tom Cruise. Uh, so after that, he actually is just walking around and he runs into a, into a mistress of the night, Domino. 
and they start talking, she invites him to, to her home, and when they started to just get close to each other, Do they kiss? Um, I don't think they do actually. I think they're about to kiss, and this is a motif in the film. He's stopped from making a bad decision by a phone call, by some sort of ringing device, and he—it's yes. his wife calling, and they get interrupted. Yeah, but in any case, he actually pays for it, and then he keeps walking and runs into the cafe sonata, that is where his friend, the piano player, like former, well, the mayor school dropout is playing. So he has a talks with him and he tells him about this party that he's playing piano for. And it's basically like a giant orgy with some weird stuff going on. He doesn't say too much about the weird stuff. He only says that, oh, the things that I've seen there, wow, it's it's pretty wild. And the women that I've seen, he doesn't just... But he's blindfolded and they don't give him the location of the party until an hour before. Yeah. But he's, then the last time he played, the blindfold was loose and he saw stuff yeah. that blew his mind. Yeah, and everyone is like, yes, dress up. So, God, is a, this is such a, there's so much stuff going on in this movie. Uh, but I'm going to be like speeding up. So he actually rents a, a, a costume. He goes somewhere else, he rents a costume. We see like a scene with a, a little girl, like the daughter of the costume owner, the costume shop owner, like just having sex with two old guys that they're like threatened to be uh, to be uh, called the police like that. And uh, then he actually goes uh, to the party. And when he arrives there, he's the only one that arrived by a taxi and everyone was like dressed up in a mask and a tunic, well, a cape with a hood and a smoking. And there is a lot of women just having sex. They're really beautiful women, but wearing masks that they are having sex with men. And uh, one of them approaches him, chooses him, and he tells him that he should leave. He should leave, there is no safe, that they're going to realize that he doesn't belong there. And 30 seconds later, he is actually called out about like, who are you? They force him to just unmask himself. And uh, then they tell him that he needs to just undress completely. But before that happens, that woman that was warning her, uh, warning him, sorry, uh, just says that he's going to be like taking her place for just paying the price of whatever there is. So he she leaves. Redeem him. So she's like sacrificing redeem. herself to yeah. allow him to leave. Yeah. So he leaves and uh, then we see like the following day, he tries to figure it out where uh, Nick Nightingale, that is probably one of the most random last names that I ever heard in my life, uh, that is the piano player, he tries to just talk with him again, but he actually check out at the hotel. Even yeah. though he was supposed to be playing for two weeks in New York, he just yeah. disappeared. Yeah. So it's a weird stuff it starts happening. He starts feeling that he's like just being followed. He calls the day short. He returns the costume. And when he returns the costume, basically the uh, the, the costume owner shop has made pieces with the other guys. And they say that, it's, oh, there is a price for everything that you want in this life. Uh, and then I don't remember what happens before the last scene at the uh, at home. Is there anything else? Oh well, sorry, the overdose. So she actually goes into a he he comes to a, sorry he buys a newspaper and he sees that a former beauty queen has committed well not really suicide but he has died of overdose. He's in the hospital because of overdose, and he goes to the hospital because he's a doctor and he's lying the whole time about like this is my patient, 
and the, uh, he sees the body because he actually died. This is the body of the woman. So she, he goes to visit the uh, the host of the party yesterday. He gets called out. I don't necessarily. He, I may have missed the host that, of the party. Asked, well, before this, by the way, he visits Domino's apartment. Mm. And Domino's not there, but he speaks to her roommate. Her roommate's like, "You were so nice to Domino, but by the way, she has HIV." Yeah. And then we see uh, Tom Cruise walking again on the streets of New York because that's basically what he does in 90% of the movie. <laughs> Which, uh, in the end of doing, that's what Nicole Kidman does. She just walks around New York all the time in long coats. The what, sorry? In what? In the, in the Undoing, the TV show that reminded me of this, it's very similar. I swear the creator of The Undoing watched this movie like 10 times. No, I want to watch it. So uh, then he gets called to the house of the host of the party. That I don't remember the name. Pollack. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. So uh, he goes there and the guy tells him that it's like he should stop looking for what happened yesterday. He explains he attended the party. He attended the party. He was there. He knew that was a very stupid thing to do. Uh, and then they start talking about exactly what is going on. He tells him that Nick is back in Seattle. That yeah, he was bruised, you know, but it's fine, you know. He actually is is back at home with his family, and then they talk about the woman that saved him, that redeemed him, and uh, he said that that's the part that is like okay, it may be a different actress, but it, there is no reason for him to say that it was the woman from the party. Just there is no real reason for that. For just yeah, and Cindy character is a liar from the beginning. When he's caught fucking the woman, the model in the bathroom, he tells he tells Tom Cruise's character, "Don't tell anyone because he cares more about his image. He just wants this to go away." And yeah, if you yeah. think about Tom Cruise, he never questions a single thing. The, the prostitutes could be lying to him. His wife could be lying. He never questions anything. And yeah, yeah. Sidney Pollack's character is so clearly a liar in this. That's true. That's true. But is that there is no reason for actually saying that it's like yeah, it's the same woman that you saved yesterday. There is no reason for doing that. Except it, it cleans things up tidily. And if you actually look at the women naked, there is no way those are the same two people. And Kubrick was a perfectionist. If he wanted it to be the same character, he would have had the same actress play it so that their breasts' shapes matched. He didn't <laughs> want them to match. Those are so clearly okay. two different women. Okay, that's, that's, that's fair. That's fair. They, are, they may be like completely different actresses, but at the same time, it's like, I don't see, I see, for example, like a benefit on lying about like your friend is safe in Seattle. But at the same time, that like you could live there. They already have mobile phones. It's like he could actually just call his friend and just ask him, are you okay? He could just, no, Nightingale, years. True, but it's a Nightingale is not such a common last name that you couldn't find a Nightingale in Seattle. It's like, it would be like two, maybe, of ten. It's like, you just call and just figure it out if he's back at home and safe. You know? So the part that is like, if he's having, that, it, that part is okay, he may be alive for just having grace, you know, like saving face right now, but it's like, it's pretty easy to detect. The other lie is impossible to actually just confirm. Because well, and I think that Kubrick used time in his benefit. And if you think this entire movie, which took over a year to film, it's like, it's what, 48 hours? A little bit less than 48 hours? I think and it's I think more than 48 hours. So preparing for the party, the vast majority of the movie is the next day. Or no, going to the party. 
And then the next day he's with the daughter. Yeah, okay. So it's a little over 48 hours. But yeah, I think he used that advantage because of yet, yeah, of course, in three days he could dig up some of these facts and figure things out. Yeah, I mean, it's true that, you know, the internet was not what it is right now. So is that there's going to be some stuff that it will be harder to track, you know? But is that that part about that woman is like, it's true, it could be a lie for just giving him some kind of reassurance about like, no, everything is close, don't worry, you know? But it's like, what kind of motive could someone have for that, you know? And he actually goes, am I missing this? But it's like, it actually says, that they were like two guards that they went back with her to her house. Um, I don't remember that. Specific. I maybe I may be making that up, you know, because he actually says that it's like yeah, but she overdosed with the room. Sorry, with the room locked from inside. Is that she had like a lot of he had a lot of information about her, Odin. Which I think is him just being a liar. He's a high-powered guy that wants to protect himself. But it's like at that point, it's like, what are you protecting? Is that the only the only other alternative that I was thinking is like maybe that's Nicole Kidman? Because something that I forgot to mention is that when he goes back home, like at four in the morning or whatever, is that Nicole Kidman is having a nightmare and she wakes up and she's like, oh, I was having a dream that we were both naked and we were surrounded by other people, and then he started fucking every single man that I had around and he started and laughing at you. Super yeah, loud. Laugh, yeah. yeah, because I wanted to humiliate you. So it's a bit more like just damaging, more like the masculinity of Tom Cruise. But it's like at the same time, it's like it's pretty similar to the reality that Tom Cruise just saw in the orgy. So know? I think, uh, are you finished with the synopsis? Uh, almost. So, yes, like pretty quickly. So, after just meeting out with Sidney Pollack there, he actually goes back home and he, when he returned the, the costume, I forgot to mention this, the mask is missing. So, he gets back home, the mask is like pretty properly placed on a pillow on the uh, on the bed next to Nicole Kidman sleeping. That is sleeping on the opposite side where he was, where she was sleeping the previous night. Just say. Just say, but yeah, just for dramatic purpose. So uh, he actually just wakes her up and he's like just breaking down, he starts crying and he just confesses everything that has happened in the last 24, 36 hours. And uh, at that, well, we suppose that he confessed to everything. We don't know if he told about Domino or anything. So the next scene is that basically they come up with some kind of, okay, it's fine. And we see them like just happily buying some presents or some gifts for her daughter. Not happily, not happily in the slightest. They are miserable in that scene. What are you talking about? Well, happily, is that they are just portraying that they are a happy family. And what they are saying is that, okay, he asked him, he asked her if she can ever forgive him. Is like, I think that I can. I don't know, I don't remember exactly the wording, but it's a bit more, is like, I think that I can, or I would, it's not about I would try, it's a bit more, is like, yes. But what we need no, to do... He, he asked her, what do you think we should do? And she said, we should be grateful that we've survived everything, both our fantasies and real world. And he yeah. says, are you sure? Is this forever? And she says, I'm sure, but let's not use that word. Yeah. And the thing is that when she says about like, just surviving our fantasies and what happened, it also just leaves the door open about like, what else did Nicole Kidman do? Yeah. He just plays with a bit more. It's like, is there more to this that we didn't see, you know, because our eyes were white sat. <laughs> and, uh, and then just then we say like, what should we do now? Is that like, okay, I'm not completely sure, but what we should do as soon as possible is fuck. 
about like just reconnecting that kind of sexual energy again yep so yeah that's that's the synopsis overall there is a lot of stuff i could simplify like a lot of them but we tend to do our synopsis i just focusing a lot of the details and there is a lot yeah and there is a lot of stuff this is at two hours and 20 minutes i think i think it's closer to 40 isn't it uh two hours and 39 minutes yeah you're right i think like just like almost 10 minutes of credits but in any case they fill out the space they fill out like the, the two hours and 30 minutes it doesn't feel like the touring homes is that there is a lot of stuff that happens here yeah there's a lot here and i think it's it's pretty clear just from the synopsis that you and i differ pretty significantly on what actually happened and ultimately i don't think it's important that point of view because you can present evidence for what you believe and i can present evidence for what i believe but i think so let's talk about the fact that this was based on a novel by a guy named schnitzel mm-hmm. uh, schnitzel was he an austrian i or german yeah he's an austrian author so he was friends with freud and he wrote this novel at the time freud was coming to the public with his kind of insane ideas which has now basically all been debunked but i think we can all appreciate what freud brought to psychology and and sexual knowledge mm-hmm. like you can't yeah. deny that and yeah. if you think that these ideas were brand new and coming to light for the first time and then schnitzel wrote this novel dealing with issues of sexual intimacy, sexual jealousy, monogamy, and in just exploring these ideas, I think that's what Kubrick was actually interested in. And there's a lot of people online that say, like, the first half of the film is literal, but then once Tom Cruise leaves the house after the party to visit the the dead um, patient, that's just a dream. I don't buy into that. The, The one kind of reading that I did buy into is that the mask was not actually on Nicole on their bed. Nicole Kidman didn't place it there. That it's way more metaphorical and that Tom Cruise was going to have to go to bed every single night knowing that That's he almost it. cheated on his wife while yeah. his wife cheated on him in her fantasy. Yeah, but she didn't do anything. But and I the- think what the film explores is, is what we do in our fantasies and how that affects yeah. reality. That's what I think the whole point is. Yeah, I think that actually the part of the story on Dream Story or whatever you like the original name of that book is about like just a husband that I get like really jealous on the wife because he had a sexual dream with another guy. As it is exactly what happens here. It's like he cannot he's like a very secure guy of himself because he cannot picture his wife like having a fantasy with someone else and it's like she did she didn't have a fantasy but she didn't act upon it so from that perspective that there is no real is it all all of the but it's things. not just that she had a fantasy it's that she had a fantasy and then she used it as a weapon to hurt him and that's what he thought she would never do but when she was high she beat him to death with her fantasy saying i would have sacrificed our entire marriage our child to have one night with this man how big yeah. do you feel yeah. now and he spent the rest of the movie trying to feel big and he couldn't because he is essentially impotent. Yeah, I mean it's true that's the interesting part is because at the end is that no one did anything because Nicole Kidman didn't act on it either. You know? Is that no one actually had sex with someone else because it's hilarious how close 
Tom Cruise gets to have sex with other people, with other women, and he doesn't do it. There is a look, if you really wanted to have sex, you would have done it with Domino's, you would have done it with uh, with the uh, daughter of the data uh, patient. Or with Domino's you... roommate, or with anybody. Or even, <laughs> or even with, the wait- with the waitress. You know, like the waitress that serves the coffee? Yeah. You could have done it. It's, like, it's pretty clear that you are like just building like this kind of chemistry with almost anyone that is on the screen. Do you know? So every time I watch a Kubrick film, every time I think, oh yes, this is my favorite Kubrick film. <laughs> so the last time is on my birthday last year, I took uh, my husband and my mom to see 2001 A Space Odyssey on God, the big I screen. It. And I thought, Jesus, this is the best Kubrick film. I'm not gonna lie, when I finished watching this, I was like, yes, this is my favorite Kubrick film. I wouldn't Please. say no. No, I, I, well, I mean, of course, that's that's great. That's your opinion, yeah, of course. But for me, it's like, a, I still, I haven't recovered yet from the first time that it was a global occurrence. I love 2001, I love the signing, but it's like the first time that I was a, a global occurrence, I was mind blown. And I just like, when it was over, it was like, oh, okay, I need a moment. I really need a moment to just process what I was here. Uh, but this movie, I actually brought you just after I finished watching, is I, I, I have forgotten how uniformly good Kubrick is in all of his He's movies. He's just exceptional. It's yeah. exceptional. So much so that whenever a movie like The Skin She Lives In, what was that, Scarlett Yeah, Child? Another World? Oh, okay. No, no. <laughs> What was the, what was the one where she plays an alien? Uh, the skin we think no. Uh, underneath the skin or something. Underneath like the that. skin, yeah, yeah. I think under the under, skin. Under the skin. Um, yeah. In the trailer of that film, it says, "Finally, we have an heir to Kubrick," and and I think, oh yeah, maybe that's super cool. And then I watch Stanley Kubrick, and I'm like, no, there is nobody. There is nobody that has made films like him in the last fifty years. No, no, and this is what you say. Like he's a perfectionist, and I assume nothing is left. To actually a random choice nothing because you can see when they walk on every single apartment on every single location it feels like there is something important about it and i was about to write you this is that something that i love about kubrick kubrick like you know like movies is that every character that is on the screen it doesn't need to spend like 15 minutes on it to develop it is that they feel like complete human beings Oh yeah, yeah, completely. There are no flat characters, and if you think, there's not a ton of like traditional character development, which you know I always talk about, but it doesn't matter because the characters themselves are so three-dimensional that you can understand their bad decisions, their good decisions, yeah. their yeah. thought processes. But I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking even about like the waitress that serves the coffee. Yeah. Is like I, I was mind blown at that point. Is like I'm not a character. Is that like the way the way that this is developed? This is like a not even like secondary, it's like tertiary kind of character. And it's like, I, I get it, it's not like Dominos or even like the roommate, you know, but it's like, there is something about like, how is this directed, about like the manners that she is using, like the kind of intonation that she's using, that is like, I'm pretty sure that working with Kubrick was a nightmare because he was like just forcing <laughs> you to repeat every single fucking scene like 100 times, but it's like, this comes across. So you know the billiard scene where Sidney Pollack calls Tom Cruise to his home basically to confront him, you shouldn't have been at this party. That scene took three weeks of shooting and and Sidney Pollack is a director himself and so he shows, showed up to set super prepared 
and Kubrick was a little bit annoyed, and so they shot for three weeks that scene, and every single shot Kubrick made Sidney Pollack perform it a different way. And you can see, because I knew that going into it, I watched, like you can see all of the work that goes into this scene. Like, it's incredible. Sure, it may be three minutes, four minutes, I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, but it's, it's the centerpiece. It's even more yeah. the centerpiece than the orgy. Yes, yes it is. Because it's where things actually just conclude. They actually come to a fake full circle, but it's like where it actually he actually just breaks down completely. It's like he just wants to go home, and then he's like the mask may not be there, but he actually just realizes about like what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, I'm completely blown away. And, and again, to reiterate, the fact that you and I disagree on what actually happened is so besides the point. The point is this film is an experience and yeah. um, Stanley Kubrick optioned this book, I think 20 or 30 years before he actually made it. And he found it so difficult to make. At some point he wanted it to be a black and white art house film starring Woody Allen as a comedy. Like he, he went through so many different versions of the script but he felt like he could never make it because Everybody is an expert on jealous sexuality, se sexual jealousy. So like, no matter who you are, you're going to approach this film with your own internalized whatever and walk away with certain things. And that's what Kubrick was intimidated by. And I think he left it just vague enough that it's like satisfying and leaves, at least me, it leaves me asking enough questions that it makes me really look at like, personally, my approach to my own marriage differently, like, how how does this, like, reflect my marriage? Does that make sense? Or am I getting no, it, it, no, 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 it makes complete sense, because when I was watching this, I was thinking about you and your marriage. I, I was <laughs> I, I'm not going to get into details, but I was thinking about that. And uh, the thing, actually, the only thing that it just pisses me off, and I know that is, like, part of the reason why Stanley Kubrick did it in this kind of way, is that at the end of the movie, nothing has changed. For these two characters, is that they're still married. They're still going to have sex. Is that they have like this adventure, you know, but it's like, it almost like the Nicole Kidman kind of closure. At the end, it's like, now we fuck. You almost just say like, we are at the same point. Is that we haven't changed as human beings. You didn't have an affair, I didn't have an affair or anything. We just explore a bit what is out there from fantasy and from reality, and we came back to where we are. But don't you think that things did change for them because they became more honest with each other? And they, they both pretended that they had this perfect marriage with the perfect daughter, everything was fine. And then they finally revealed to themselves, look, I have a, a sexual, I feel not sexually inadequate, unsatisfied sexually. Yep. They've had these fantasies and they've explored or, and they confess those things to each other in a safe way. And so when she says, we should just be grateful we survived this, like, I buy that. Like, hey, let's realize we're each imperfect and that we still want to be with each other and work towards staying towards that. Yeah, but at the same time, I had the feeling that they, they are not going to change anything. They're going to remain, like, from below the surface, unhappy, without realizing about it. I mean, without realizing, without accepting it, that they're unhappy. Because it's true that Nicole Kidman almost acted in a fantasy that he had, but Tom Cruise, he was not going to. 
is that when these two girls are asking her, like these two models, is that he was not going to go with them, I assume. But the difference is Nicole Kidman said, if he had wanted me, I would have done this. Tom Cruise had all of those people basically saying, fuck me, and he didn't do it. But these two models, I mean, this truth is that you're saying is that there is always some kind of interruption, some kind of, okay, I will stop. I will do the right thing. And, you know, it's like, if he would have done it or not, we don't know. I, I had the feeling that it's a Tom Cruise actually is in love with Nicole Kidman in the movie. And he actually finds some kind of excuse for not doing something that it may be like just caused by external factors or not, but he rolls with it. Yeah, I mean, you and I slightly disagree with our view on this specific thing, but again, I think that's what makes this film so, dare I say, perfect. Because it's pretty close to perfect for me. I mean, it's not like a perfect film, but this is exactly what I want to get out of films. I want to walk away from it with a new idea, with a new thought about who I am, with a... a, a something to discuss with you where we may disagree but we can see each other's point of view i mean for me this is this is cinema with a capital c <laughs> you like it that last <laughs> <was> quick <laughs> no i mean i agree that is like this is a movie that you finish watching it and you can keep thinking about it it's not only the face value you know it's like as we discussed before we started with the podcast is that for me one of the leaf motifs of this movie is not about what happens. It's about like the reality, the society. That is that like when he actually has this kind of awakening, is that he becomes woke. You know, and he starts like just seeing how everything is like sexualized, how he's just missing that kind of sexualization, and it's almost like just having this kind of a awake note. You know, that is like you're married for a very long time, is that you're going to be subduing this kind of sexual instincts. But. Again, I think this is just you and me having different perspectives. Do you think he becomes woke? Or do you think that his wife just hurt him so bad after he had so much trust in her that he looked for some sort of revenge that he couldn't bring himself to do? Uh, I think that it's half and half, you know? I think that it's half and half because, for example, it's like the kind of very disturbing stuff that he sees. Like, for example, like the teenager daughter of the owner of the costume shop, like having sex with these two old guys, that's not something about the revenge itself, you know? He's a bit more like just starting to realize about how much sex is around him and how much he actually closed this because he was in a happy marriage and he realized that I'm not supposed to be fucking around. He said, this is part of something that you do when you are single, but now that you are in a happy marriage, you don't do this. And now he realizes, oh, this was not a happy marriage. It was only like a one-sided happy marriage. So the daughter of the costume shop owner is Lily Sobieski, Sobieski, I think you pronounce her name. And she only has one speaking line in the entire film, even though she has more screen time, she says hello and that's it. But she whispers something inaudibly to Tom, in Tom Cruise's ear, which is easily found on the internet because they published the script. But did it remind you of another scene? I don't know. Lost in translation? I'm sorry, but Sophia oh, God. she ripped the scene off for Lost in Translation. Like, it's so clear. So what does he say? She says, you'll need an ermine liner for your cape. You need a what? 
an ermine liner. It's like a type of liner. So he wants to rent a tux and a cape for the yeah. party and a mask. And she, she says, you'll need an ermine liner for your cape. And that's it. But because they took the actual audible dialogue out, it was way that's more like... Good. That's pretty yeah. good. That, that was like a very smart move. I was like, yes, and then Sofia Coppola ripped it off. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, because we don't know, what, what does actually Scarlett Johansson say to us more right at the end of her? You can find it on YouTube, but I think it, it's something like, hey, we're going to be friends forever. I'm going to find you again or something. Yeah, it's like a friend sonning. It's the, the ultimate yeah. friend sonning. Yeah. It's not. It's not great. Yeah. So, uh, I, but what I was saying is like, it, it feels like all of these scenes that they are so sexual. Or for example, like, why does the waitress next door to the Cafe Sonata knows where Night, Nick Nightingale is this? is staying you know it's like probably they have sex yeah definitely yeah and then when he goes to the hotel he's like the guy the gay guy the gay concierge is just basically insinuating a very obnoxious way to peel so yeah no so. i the, and the gay guy is it alan cummings is that his name he's so clearly coming on to tom cruise i, I was like oh this is the yeah best, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's i don't know he's sweet and awkward at the same way oh. But uh, from that perspective, that everything becomes sexual from that point on. Everything. Everything becomes like a bit more of a threat to his marriage. And I'm not saying that it's a bit more of a movie about like defending marriage, conventional marriage or anything like that, but it feels a bit more of a suddenly displaying the underbelly of New York and just saying that it's everything that you were not looking at is sexual. It's not about like violence or anything, it's like everything sex is what is moving everything here so i can definitely respect that reading but in my, my mind it's all about the emotional journey of the characters it doesn't have anything to do with new york or the underbelly it's just what changed in their marriage to shift so dramatically their view of themselves their partnership and the world around them because things don't become sexualized for nicole kidman i think she hurt him and he went out looking for a way to hurt her and he could never bring himself to do it mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a completely valid uh, interpretation too. But for me, is that some of the stuff that it happens, you know, as I was telling you about like, the custom shop, is, is completely independent from what they're doing. You know, is that there is no reason for that to be there, except if it's not for showing about like how sexually corrupt the city actually is. And then when they actually make amends, or when they are trying to make amends, they go to the safest place in the world. That is like a toy shop. A toy store, yeah. <laughs> it's FAO Schwartz, actually, in Times Square. Which, what New Yorker shops at FAO Schwartz in Times Square? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay, that's fair. Only a Londoner would make that mistake. <laughs> but uh, I, I just feel, and it's like this is one of the reasons why I picked the movie that I already picked, that we already discussed before this podcast for next week, because it's, for me, it's true that it's not only, it's not like the, the main the main motif of the movie i agree with you that the main motif is the trip that tom cruise goes through you know about like how i actually just make peace with this feeling that my wife had that i was like so secure of myself that my wife is never going to be like doing something and now she had a fantasy and i'm going to be like throwing everything away you know to get back at her i get it but it's like when it gets to to this orgy that is like so <laughs> so far-fetched you know, I'm sorry, but it's like it's not like the normal thing that you could do. And I will say that the orgy 
is so far-fetched. It's so far-fetched that in the hands of somebody um, less skilled than Stanley Kubrick, it would have been so absurd on screen, but it wasn't. It was, it's quite compelling, I think, that the orgy is just, it's beautiful and it's frightening and it's sexual and there's a lot of like menace beneath the surface. It's, yeah. it's pretty. It's yeah. just, it's mysterious. Yes. It's mysterious. And it's a bit more of a selling point of the movie about like, I can understand that some people are going to be like remembering this movie for this aspect, you know, that is like a, this like orgy with the mask and the hoods and everything. I can understand that that's the case, you know, that is like some people are going to be like just making this the centerpiece, that everything else is built around. But for me, it's just a bit more of a taking it to the absurd. Not, not about like absurding a bad kind of way, but it's a bit more, it's like you are not going to even have sex in a mysterious orgy of the Illuminati. And that's why I would buy into this, like this alternative reading on the internet that like half of the film is a dream because yeah, it feels surreal. Most of the film feels surreal and you're like, why isn't this getting to a place of resolution or a, a place of conflict? So yeah, I get it. It's it's absurdist realism, surrealism, I guess. Yeah, or magic realism, whatever <laughs> you want yeah. to call it. But it's, it's true that it's, it's something that is iconic. You know, it's something that is like visually memorable. You know, all those women like sitting down, well, sitting down like just on their knees, and they start like just looking for guys to have sex with. Yeah. So there's a ceremonial like start to the orgy where there's clearly some sort of like MC or like master who's leads a very synchronized, I don't know, ceremony where the women disrobe, they bow, blah, blah, blah. And it's very disturbing, the sounds that come out of this. Did you know that the the sounds that you're hearing are, a, it's, it's a mass, a Catholic mass recorded in Romanian played backwards. I was assuming that there was something there, you know, like that. And the other you thing can is hear that, it a yeah. little bit, but then I also think that he stole that straight from David Lynch. He stole <laughs> it straight from Twin Peaks. He was like, oh, yep, this midget scene works playing backwards. I'm taking it. I, so I wanted to ask you something. Is the uh, the main melody that they play only on the piano in a very simplified way, is it actually uh, Ofortuna from Camina Burana? I, to be honest, I don't know. I know it's actually a piece, like a minimalist piece that's been used in other films. Okay. Um, I'd have to look that up. The music in this, by the way, is just incredible. Yeah, and he uses it like pretty smartly, you know, about like just being the intention. So, yeah, I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with it, you know, and that's the reason why I told you it's like this. This is one of the reasons why we lost so much talent when Kubrick died. And it's a bit of a pity that his next movie that it was going to be AI, that it ended up in one, that I'm not going to say that it's bad, but it's like it ended up in a Steven Spielberg hands. But he's like really good about doing, playing entertainment. Yeah, but it would have been something elevated with Stanley Kubrick. I'm so curious to see that, yeah. yeah. And a lot of people call this the unfinished Stanley Kubrick masterpiece. And it's true that he didn't have the chance to fine tune the film, but he presented the final cut. Was it to Warner Brothers? Is that who distributed this? He presented the final cut to them four days before he died. 
So some things were added, like some editing and some music, but by and large, this is exactly what Kubrick wanted us to see. Huh, so. I don't know that. Yeah. So it was not even releasing uh, outside of the States? No, it was released everywhere. Just the United States is so puritanical. They said, put these digital people standing in front of the orgy. But I, I bet you, you didn't see that. It's so well done in 1999. It's well done. It's well done. But it's like, it's pretty convenient. It's like when you actually think about like, why is there someone on every single of the five <laughs> of people fucking that is like just in front of them? But I think that it actually adds to it. So I have the European cut. Since you're European, I can lend it to you if you want to watch it. Uh, <laughs> And you can see that I think the uh, computer-generated people in front of the explicit sex, it actually adds to the mystery. I prefer it that way. I I felt, I mean, the thing is that for me, when I was watching the movie, the sex, you know, like having the sex, like completely being open, you know, like almost like love from Gaspar Noé in front of the screen, like completely explicit. I think that I would have felt exactly the same way. Oh, like this, doesn't add everything, you know, like it's more explicit. And I think that you're right about like it makes it like more mysterious about like, oh, I can everything. But to be fair, as I never watched this movie and I heard so much about those scenes that I thought like we like way more people around instead of just a conveniently placed person in front of it that it makes it like pretty obvious about like I should be there. I can see that, but I also think that it supports. I think we're supposed to see the orgy from Tom Cruise's point of view, and he's an outsider. He's very clearly an outsider. He's not supposed to be there. You feel like this tension, thinking he's going to be discovered. And I think those computer-generated people add to that. Like, you're not going to get to see everything because you're not supposed to be here. Yeah, no, that, that's, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, overall, I mean, the thing is, like, for me, that's not that's not like the main highlight of the movie funny enough I no it's not yeah because it's 65 seconds and two hours and 40 minutes of course it's not the point of the film no i i think that they, i i don't think that i could identify any specific scene that i would say that is the highlight maybe like some of the scenes where nicole kidman and tom cruise are talking with each other or or when tom cruise is talking is walking around new york <laughs> For me, the, the pivotal scene, the scene that the entire film uh, like circles on is them getting high and having this discussion about her fantasies. That's what yeah. rocked the entire film. Yeah, and I think I thought about it when it was happening. When she's like breaking down, albeit the acting is terrible, the camera work is pretty good. I don't know if you realize that the camera work doesn't try to follow her like cleanly. She tries to just emphasize about like how chaotic the scene is you know, how unbalancing is becoming for Tom Cruise. So I don't know who was his uh, director of photography, but yeah, there is there is a good work here because it still feels, it feels like his 70s works, you know, it still feels like this kind of avant-garde work that he would do in the clockwork or I'm sorry, but I just was there's a camera shot that I feel is so 70s and it's like a very, like an incredibly long zoom. Like the camera's oh, here oh. and you zoom in like 200 yards. Can I, can I try to uh, guess which one is it? 
when the woman when the woman is on the top in the audience they're like i will redeem him and the camera is like just going from a, almost from a really far away to the to a first shot that's that and in the orgy when he just joins and then two people spot him from the balcony and they can tell he's an intruder oh, and yeah. it like zooms in on them like those two scenes i'm like this feels like it's from the 70s like from a grindhouse film in the 70s yeah yeah so but the funny thing is like it's pretty clear that it's the 70s but it still works even in 2020 21 sorry yeah so if i don't mean to jump forward into our questions but is this a timely piece or a timeless film this is 100 percent. it's so fucking timeless i can't even believe it in fact i was listening to some uh i don't know his name but it's a well-respected film critic and he said in 100 years people are going to look back on this film as an example of what america was or what the world was between 1950 and 2000. And yeah, yes, exactly. 50 years, but 50 years of margin. That is that there are not so many movies that they can actually just set up in a threshold of 50 years, in a range of 50 years. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. This is yeah. so timeless. Because, yeah, because for me, it's not about like, you know, like how they call each other on the phone or anything like that. It's a bit more about like the reality of the society. For me, I, I know that for you, it's like, and I respect it completely about like just the growth of the characters, is that for me, it's like the reality of the society that they are living in and about like the pressure that they are like actually receiving on their marriages by it. You know? Yeah, and, I topic, and it's a topic that we discussed like multiple times. I think that I told you I'm living in San Francisco as a gay person, I feel like there is a lot of pressure for just obsessed with everything. Oh yeah, you can't be monogamous here as a gay man. You can't yeah, yeah but it's essentially what they actually are describing here is that they never become swingers, but they insinuated like multiple times. They never act upon it, but it's a bit more of that kind of threshold. You know, and it shows that they both have those desires, something of those desires. And exactly. that should be yeah. Yeah. So I I agree one hundred percent is that this is a completely timeless piece. I was surprised that, wait, this was 99 is that the only thing that gives away is that they have a very bulky mobile phone. That's it. Yeah. Other than that, this is 22 years old. 22 years old. Yeah. No, that that part is amazing. So uh, just continue with that. Is there anything artistic about it? As we already replied. There is nothing more artistic than Stanley Cooper's direction. Nothing. Like, it blows me away every time. I considered watching Barry Lyndon today because of this film. Which is a period piece neither of us have watched because we don't like so I am going to be adding to the list of, uh, of movies all Stanley Kubrick movies. That's so, I actually have his Blu-ray collection on my shelf. So. Yeah, but yeah, there are a couple of them that I haven't watched, and the rest of them that I have already watched is like I will find watching it again. I think that I told you, but he used to be in charge with translating all the movies into other countries. So everything, all the text that you see that is written down is translated into the language where the movie actually says is played. I, I didn't know that. Like, like yeah. when Tom Cruise, he goes into a cafe at some point and starts to read the newspaper, they did every single shot of that in different languages. So like the mm-hmm. Italian version, he's reading an Italian newspaper. That's yep. so fucking cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, I don't want like people to read that. I want to have like the full immersion. But it's like pretty good. For me, it was always like pretty good about it. But this takes place in New York. Why do we just pay like so much effort? Like, New York is not in Spain. It's not Madrid. It's like, I, you're not like changing the names or changing the locations. You're only changing like what they're reading. But he wanted like that kind of perfectionist that you were saying. And it's something hilarious that in, 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 uh, in the signing, 
they chose, I don't know what is the name of the actress, but they chose uh, a comedic actress that she has like a very, very specific uh, voice as the main actress. And he reviewed that and he was okay with that. that I think that that was like the biggest failure on Kubrick's career. I just acknowledge that. Choosing that actress. Because I think that it was a bit more that you're choosing her because she looks a bit like the main actress. But the voice is not okay because everyone's going to be like thinking about the the comedy that she does. Shelley Duvall, right? Yeah, I think so. So uh, it was Veronica Forque, like the actress that they chose. And it's like she has like such a, nas- a nasal voice that we always associate with the comedy that she does. It's like, this makes no sense. Why, why Kubrick would go with that? It's, it's surreal. So, but in any case, it's like for me, this movie is, is artistic from the beginning to the end, from the first shot to the last one. It's like everything is like, there is such a love, such a care, such a love for detail that I cannot think of any other director. Even it's like, we love David Lynch. We love Lars von Trier. We love like Haneke. It's like none of these. They're like child's play. They're like child's play compared to what Cooper films are. (laughs) Well, I don't think so. I think that they are like they excel in different directions. I think that Kubrick is a bit more from the perspective of I respect cinema as an art from the perspective of everything that should happen on the screen is something that could happen somewhere to the minimum detail, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be like allowing anything to get out of hand. And also like just playing, and we didn't say this, we, we mentioned this before the podcast, but the two characters that they call like Bill and uh, Alice, was it? Alice, yeah. Uh, that's Tom and, uh, Tom and yeah. Yeah, so uh, Alice, Nicole Kidman, you can actually think about like Alice in Wonderland. Yep. And Bill, you can think on that $1 bill. Which he seems to have a lot of. He carries yeah. a lot of cash. Yeah, and I, one of the videos that I watched, he was like just talking about like the first sentence. I didn't. I wish that I actually had watched that video before watching the movie. But it's like the first sentence that they actually speak. They define the character. That is like Bill talks about like what is my wallet, and he spent the rest of the movie like just spending money, you know. And Alice actually talks about like how do I look, and he spends most of the movie about like just being that pretty woman that is an object of desire. She asked how she looked while she had her panties down sitting on the toilet, which I think is also representative of the mess of the film. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. So I felt like it was like so mind-blowing about like the level of detail that Kubrick went with the detail, with the movie, you know, about like nothing is left to... I mean, it's left to interpretation because as we are solid displayed here is that we we are not 100% aligned, we are like 95% aligned, but the kind of care about the movie as a whole, I think that is impressive. And I don't think a film that isn't this carefully crafted facilitates conversations like this, where we can completely agree to disagree. Like, you can't do that other movies there's like a defined narrative a defined moral that you're supposed to learn and the fact that this is so ambiguous and we can agree with each other's differing points of view is just a testament to his craft which sounds so cheesy but i mean it applies here yeah no definitely uh would you watch this movie again 100 i've seen this movie maybe six times 
I would definitely watch it again, and I feel a bit dumb that I believe the critics back then for not <laughs> watching it because maybe I wouldn't have appreciated back then, you know. But by right, right now, I feel like wow, this this is good. This is like cinema with capital C. That's what we're saying. Uh, would you recommend this movie? Oh yeah, I would recommend this to anyone. I Your wouldn't mother? watch it with my mom, but I would say watch this. I mean, there's a sexually explicit scene, but it's not the erotic titillating film that the marketing campaign said it should be. It's a lot just about examining modern relationships and sexuality and what it means to be jealous. Yep. Yeah, I would recommend it too. I recommend it already twice since yesterday. I don't know if I would recommend it to my parents. I think that this one may have crossed <laughs> a bit a little too, yeah. a little too celebration, celebration, you know, about like child abuse, fine. But this, well, no, there is like too much nudity here. Uh, would you remember it? Did you remember all of it? Um, I would say I remember 95% of it. I, rem I remembered everything from like Venetia Shaw, Domino the Prostitute, like okay. all of it I remembered, so. Gotcha. Uh, I think I would remember like the, uh, the gist of it. I don't know if I would remember like, for example, the scene when he goes to visit Domino for the second time and the roommate is there. I think that that I think was like, eh. Like, I didn't yes. remember the HIV diagnosis. Uh, I actually knew about that because I think that long, long, long time ago, I only watched like from that point to the end. And I remember uh, that there was something with a prostitute that he had something with and she got HIV. I remember that part. So he was like, well, there is something right to tell you that she got HIV immediately. Uh, and would you turn this into a TV show? No, this is so perfect the way it is, I would not change anything. Yeah, I think that there is like 2 hours and 39 minutes that they are like perfectly used, that there is no need for anything else. Yeah. And I think that if they were to expand it, they would have like a second orgy or something like that, and I would be like diminishing, like what is the message of the movie. Yeah, or like expanding that whole, am I being followed, am I not being followed, like Bill being paranoid, like, and that's not, we didn't need any more of that. Yeah, no, I think that it's like you just use it once, like using the paranoia for buying the newspaper and going to the other cafe shop, and that's it. That's more than enough. You don't need more. Come on, so uh, should we score these? We should, and this was my pick, so you go first. I've already picked my score. I'm a bit torn. I'm a bit torn, because after our conversation, I think that it's better than I expected it to be. And I was like between two scores, but I, I'm going to go like even higher than this. I'm going to say this and I. That was my score too. I mean, it's uh, it's not La Ventura, but it's pretty damn close. <laughs> yeah, it was between like an 8 and an 8.5. But after talking with you, I was like, I'm more convinced that this is a sh an amazing movie. That this is like, it's unfair how this was judged initially. And so oh, yeah. the yeah, some of the videos that I saw that they actually started the video with is that look, critics didn't receive it properly, but now there are like a lot of studies about this movie, realizing about like how good it was, and because we were like more puritanic or you know like more like oh well, my god, there's some sex, is that they disregarded it. And I was actually listening to an interview with Nicole Kidman when this film came out, and there was a tremendous amount of secrecy around the film, but people kept like quote-unquote leaking things to the press so she was saying like I was reading in the New York Times facts about this film and they weren't accurate at all but they were being reported on as facts and everyone expected this like 
this insight into the sex life between Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. And when it came out, everyone was so disappointed. But if you take all of that away and just look at it as a film, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Honestly, I was, I was engaged in a way that only Tarantino can make in a movie over two hours. Uh, that's uh, pretty <laughs> well, high praise. But we had talked about, yeah, yeah, we had talked about it a couple of times. It's like he can actually just pull a Pulp Fiction, or you know, even uh, once upon a time in uh, in uh, in Hollywood, and it's like you are just engaged with those movies. They cannot be. I mean, they may not be perfect, but he has like a a sense of read and a sense of narrative that is like you cannot put yourself away and for me i had to split it in two because i started watching it too late but I, oh you know i'm going to just lose interest after one hour so it's only fine i watch an hour and 20 minutes and it's like i had to stop now because it's really late yeah and no because stay. i was yeah because exactly i will have a state is that the other movie that i think that i if feel that i actually just forced me to stay up like back in the day you said i'm going to stop now it was mulholland drive oh that's very high praise very high praise yeah i mean i think that this is a movie at the same kind of level about like yeah this is engaging there is more to it than it actually just meets the eye and it's going to be after you finish watching it you're going to just remain thinking about it about like what is the line between what they desire and what what happened Remain thinking about it, and for me, and I'm guessing it's the same for you, like, want to talk about it. Like, you and I couldn't stop from talking about it, and we kept saying, let's stop, because we yes. need to talk on the podcast. Yep. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you forbid me from accessing the spreadsheet, so I, I wouldn't score, but I was... <laughs> no, I already wrote it. What did we give? Um, Mulholland Drive? Yeah. You gave it a 9.75. Wow. Yeah. And I give it an eye. But it's like, I, I still like Mulholland Drive more than this. But, just, but it's, because, it's because of the movie that it is, you know? It's because of the movie that it is and because of some of the scenes are so powerful that on this one, for example, I cannot say that I'm going to remember a specific scene completely. That's fair. And yeah, and I think, um, well, I absolutely love this movie and I would watch it again. I think Mulholland Drive is like, oh my God, let's watch Mulholland Drive. Oh yeah, I will watch it right now, okay. Oh yeah, man. So, uh, anything else to say about as we said? I mean, there is like plenty of stuff to say about as we said, but anything that we should discuss? There's a lot, and I've said this like nine times in this recording, but I I think the really cool thing about this is you can disagree, and it doesn't matter. Like you get something out of this film, no matter what you think actually happened on the screen, and that's what I love about cinema. In addition to the fact these are upper class people who are just miserable, which you know I love. Yep, <laughs> so. yep. When they actually get to that point when she breaks down, and you can see like the face of Tom Cruise from a smile, like the crazy smile that he lost to the woman, like. <laughs> I felt like uh, becoming unhappy is like, yeah, this is Blake's movie. This is Blake's yep. genre. Yep. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so uh, for next time, I wanted us to keep exploring the underbelly of the American reality. And I wanted to go back actually to David Lynch and I want us to watch Blue Velvet. I can't wait. I love Blue Velvet. I love Blue Velvet so much. Yeah. And I, I'm going to say this. Yeah, I'm going to say this on record too, because as you said that you really love it, is that the only time that I watched it, I didn't like it. I find it like extremely profoundly dumb 
but this was like just before I moved here. So I know everyone told me that this is a comedy, you cannot take it like completely seriously, and it's about America. So you don't live in the States, you may not understand it. So I'm curious to see now after nine years living here, I bet I don't live in suburban America. Of course, it's got to be my perspective. So thank your Spanish friends for introducing you to America via Blue Velvet for me. Thank you. Yeah, we'll talk about this more next week. Okay, and to those nine people, ten people listening to us, thank you so much for putting up with us. And wash your hands until you get a vaccine. <laughs> Bye.